This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Episode 56 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. For the past six months or so, researchers in Recorded Future's Insect group have been dissecting the structure of cyber operation groups within the Islamic Republic of Iran. In recent years, that nation has regularly used offensive cyber campaigns in response to sanctions or other provocations. On May 8, 2018, President Trump announced the U.S. will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, leading to concerns that Iran is likely to respond with cyber attacks on Western businesses. Levi Gundert joins us once again to provide context to this situation. He's one of the authors of a newly published report from Recorded Future titled Iran's Hacker Hierarchy Exposed. A program note, we recorded this segment just a few days before President Trump's decision on the Iran nuclear deal was announced. Stay with us. We've been doing research on Iran in the cyber domain for the last six months or so. And obviously, this decision point with President Trump and whether he will stay in the Iran nuclear deal or exit has pretty serious implications for Western businesses. And so the research is in part talking a little bit about the structure of how Iran cyber operations work internally, and then also talking about some of the the proxies, some of the contractors that get used in offensive cyber operations and why, depending on how this, this goes, if Trump decides to exit the nuclear deal, that Western businesses and American businesses specifically should probably be very mindful of offensive campaigns coming out of Iran in, in the near future. Um, we've seen that historically there's a pattern here in 2012 after the Obama administration sanctioned Iran and actually cut off funding from the SWIFT payment network. There was reprisals that happened relatively quickly in the form of denial of service attacks against over 40 financial services companies that were pretty large denial of service attacks at the time. And then if you fast forward a couple of years to 2013, at the end of 2013, uh, Sheldon Allison had made some, some remarks that were uh, very derogatory about Iran, and they subsequently attacked the Sands uh, Corporation with a, a wiper attack attempting to destroy uh, data in the network for, for Sands. And so those t- sort of attacks were, were very different, but they were sort of knee-jerk responses to something uh, that that occurred that affected Iran on a on a I guess you'd say geopolitical level and that's very different from some of the APT 33 34 35 uh, type of attacks which are much more methodical use different types of malware and have sort of long-term intelligence objectives and so we we kind of dissect you know the differences there and why American businesses in particular should be very wary if Trump does decide to exit this nuclear agreement. So I I think there's a lot of table setting that we need to do here. There's a lot of history when it comes to Iran uh, and how they deal with their cyber capabilities, the people that they work with, and and some of the background there. Can you you take us through how we got to the point where we are today? Sure. So it is very interesting because I think Iran operates in a a different space from 
really any other country that has offensive cyber operations in an organized way. And obviously, there are many countries bringing those online. But, you know, Iran has serious capabilities and they, they may not be as sophisticated as a Russia or a China or United States for that matter. But they're they're certainly very capable. And what's interesting about Iran is obviously in 1979, you have the Persian monarchy and the Shah are removed from power and that power then moves into a, a theocracy. And what's interesting about that is that Iran generally sort of operates in this space where there's not a lot of, of trust and there's a sort of deep-seated paranoia. And I think, you know, after what we saw, you know, 2005 through 2010 with uh, Stuxnet and the damage that that did internally to the Iranian nuclear program, um, the assassination of some of their scientists internally within Iran, I think has just bred a lot of deep-seated mistrust all the way around. And so it's interesting because we interviewed a Iranian hacker that was in Iran, and he obviously knows a lot of the folks in Iran, and he ran a security forum. And so a lot of the information that he provided was was very illuminative in terms of how, how things work in Iran and, and this deep-seated paranoia. And so when it comes to cyber operations specifically in that domain, what they tend to do is really segment out tasking. So there'll be one group that is tasked with writing an exploit, and there's another group tasked with actually using that exploit to gain persistence in, in an adversary's network. But what's interesting is that they sort of uh, use a contractor system where the contractors uh, only get paid after they perform the work successfully. And there's this this sort of tension or trade-off between uh, contractors, whether they be individuals or groups of, of individuals, uh, you know, do they sort of toe the line in terms of the, the religious philosophy and the ideology within Iran? Or do they just sort of do enough to, to get the job as a contractor? Because most of the folks in Iran, according to our source, that have real skill sets in terms of offensive cyber capabilities are the younger generation. And the younger generation tends to be much more motivated by uh, financial paydays. They're not as motivated by the ideology of the country and the regime. And so there's sort of this tension between, you know, do we do we hire and use contractors that we know don't really care about our ideology? Do we just hire, you know, the best regardless? And so what we've been told by our sources in Iran, you know, the ideology comes first. But what's interesting is that sometimes when you want to send a message in the case of Operation Ababil, which happened in 2012 in response to sanctions, or in the case of the Sands Corporation, sometimes the government or the IRGC may make the decision to use contractors who are best able, best equipped to perform an attack, even if they're not necessarily the most ideologically aligned with the Iranian government. And I think that's what kind of makes Iran very special. And that if you look at other countries, they don't have the religious component in government and their issues around, you know, trust and and traders, you know, has has less to do with with religion and, and ideology. And so I think that that's kind of what makes Iran a, a unique case study. And one of the things that you pointed out in this research is that because of that tension, 
Um, you kind of end up with a, a middle management layer of, of folks who are in between the technical people and the, the government, folks who can sort of play both sides of that. Is that a, a good way to describe it? Yeah, that's a good synopsis of it. So again, our sources said that within Iran, there are there are folks, there's a, there's a middle management layer or tier that is very trusted because they do adhere to the religious tenets uh, within Iran. There's a, a core trust in that group. And so it's uncertain. There's not a lot of transparency into which individuals or groups specifically within the Iranian government are tasking, but tasks are being pushed into that that middle tier, middle layer. And then from there, they're responsible uh, for essentially prioritizing and segmenting uh, different tasks and deliverables, you know, for the for the larger mission uh, and, and really segmenting as granularly as possible to many different contractors so that no one has the whole picture and um, really understanding who the best contractors are, you know, for each each piece of the tasking. Another thing that you point out is that there's this sort of ongoing uh, threat of not being paid, but there could be physical punishment as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what's interesting is you, according to our source, you know, what happened during the, the Green Revolution in 2009 is that there were a lot of these forums that were that were operating in Iran and they had different purposes. But when the when the Green Movement happened and there were more attacks against the Iranian government and some of their information assets and websites, they essentially issued an edict that they were all to be uh, shut down. And a lot of those individuals who were running these forums were imprisoned. And uh, allegedly, some of them were, were tortured, and many of them ended up working for the Iranian government subsequently. But I think that that is a good point, and that there's always this mistrust that pervades everything. And just because you're a contractor that is in you know good graces with the Iranian government today, doesn't mean that tomorrow you're going to be above suspicion and that could potentially lead to imprisonment and or torture in, in Iran. And so it's a very tenuous balance for the folks that have the skills that are being paid very well as contractors when they deliver. Uh, because I think, again, that, that mistrust, that paranoia pervades everything. You know, there's always the, the potential that you could be viewed as, as a trader that is giving away you know, infor- information to the wrong parties outside of Iran. So can you take us through and describe to us within Iran, what is the cyber ecosystem? Well, again, we, we talked a little bit about it in terms of the, the layers of the structure of how, of how tasking happens. And we've actually seen there's, there's very loose associations. So one of the interesting things is that two of the more prominent forums historically were Ashani and Samor. And Ashani was really the, the primary hacking forum or security forum that survived the Green Party movement in 2009. And so there's, there's very uh, loose associations that are made in terms of uh, those that are, are forum members who comprise some of the talent that work for contractors in Iran that carry out some of these offensive cyber campaigns. And in one particular case, we can't verify it, but our source says that there is uh, one specific individual who is uh, an interesting data point, uh, Hassan Azgari, who was the self-proclaimed Iranian hacker that actually managed and run Samora. And that was his forum. And his father was actually employed by the RAGC. 
So there's sort of loose and tenuous connections between uh, the forums and the contractors and the Iranian government. But what's clear is that we've certainly seen over the last decade, many of the Iranian contractors outed. So IT set team, Mossad company, there's many more that have been outed. There's the Mamna Institute, there's the Nasser Institute, the FBI has indicted a number of different individuals that have been charged with the theft of scientific intellectual property from universities or been charged in other types of offensive cyber campaigns like Operation Abbeville. We know publicly a lot of these contractors and we know that this is how they operate. So the, the links to hackers within Iranian forums and, and contractors is a little bit looser. But we also we also know that there's only uh, so many people to pull from in terms of, you know, who comprises these these contracting groups. Yeah. And that was uh, my next question, which is if you have this uh, regime where paranoia is strong, um, how do you then home grow people with the skills that you need to be able to do the things you want to do? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of this historically has been knowledge sharing, and that's how it started in the beginning. But knowledge sharing among peers only sort of takes you so far. And there's obviously a lot of ways that you can self-educate using the internet as, as the most critical resource. But one of the interesting things that our source told us is that there are educational classes on offensive techniques that occur in Turkey or occur in the United Arab Emirates. It's not always straightforward. It's, it's not always obvious that the students are, are all from Iran. And so you have some companies from Europe that actually show up and, and put on classes and training for, for groups of people, uh, specifically on offensive tradecraft. What do you suppose the range of capabilities are? What should people be worried about? Well, I think what we've seen historically is that they're very capable of, of launching denial service attacks. They're very capable of spear phishing campaigns that are well-constructed, and they are capable of developing malicious code sets, specifically what we'd call wiper malware. And I think in the case of the, the SANS attack in 2014, what we saw was a very swift response that was actually very, very capable. So, you know, they gained access to the SANS network from a satellite location and worked their way back to the, the main network and started a destructive attack. And I think, you know, that was 2014 and they have have really invested in and, and developed uh, capabilities since right around 2009, 2010. I think that development continues to accelerate. You know, if you look at the other groups, APT 33, 34, 35, and what they've been involved with and where they've been successful targeting military contractors, targeting Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of capabilities there. And um, I think Western businesses and American businesses in particular, probably Israeli businesses, should really be uh, careful to follow geopolitical developments, especially with Iran, because they do have this history of retaliating very quickly. And given what we know about the types of attacks that they implement, what are your recommendations for people to proactively protect themselves? Well, again, it's it's hard. I mean, it's it's a lot of this is the basic the basic sanitation that we we always talk about, Dave. And you know, a lot of this is knowing your network better better than your adversary, which is is an easy thing to say, but actually, it's a really difficult thing to do. You know, um, really understanding the ins and out of your own network. Um, again, most of the attacks historically have started with some sort of phishing campaign. There's obviously all kinds of security controls 
that you can implement around fishing, you know, making sure that you're you're not just looking at what's making it through your your spam and your phishing filters, but looking at what's not making it through and, and doing some analysis there can be very helpful uh, from a threat intelligence perspective. And then on the denial of service side, you know, making sure that you have uh, a game plan in place. And if you are subjected to a very well-crafted denial of service attack, you know, that you have thought through how you're going to mitigate that, whether it be your border routers, you know, do you have a third-party service in place that can handle and saturate some of that, some of those packets? You know, do you have the relationships with the organizations that you peer with in case you need their help in, in blocking and some of those packets? So I think um, a lot of it is just the, the basic hygiene uh, that, that we all kind of struggle with, especially when you talk about, you know, at the enterprise level. Our thanks to Levi Gundert for once again joining us. You can read the full report, Iran's Hacker Hierarchy Exposed. That's on the Recorded Future website. It's in their blog section. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.